0: Welcome to the new and, we hope you'll agree, improved Fourth Estate podcast. It's no chimp, but you might have noticed the addition of some pretty funky beats. Each episode will feature a new tune, so, you know, feel free to vote for your favourites. On this episode, we'll round up on what March has brought us. We have Judith Claire Mitchell, author of A Reunion of Ghosts, in conversation with her editor, Letta Franklin. A recipe from Anna James's best-selling A Modern Way to Eat, and I talk to Ian Sansom, writer extraordinaire and creator of the wonderfully epic The County Guides. What if the man who invented chemical weapons was also a grandfather? And what if his great-grandchildren grew up to be three hilarious, introverted, deeply haunted sisters living in New York? And what if those sisters co-wrote a fascinating, funny and deeply sad 350-page suicide note? Then you'd have a reunion of ghosts. That's Anthony Durr, author of All the Light We Cannot See, talking about the first segment of this show. And here's author Judith Clare Mitchell on the remarkable and ultimately tragic family that her new novel takes its story from
1: grandfather, in the book his name is Lenz Alter, but he's very much based on uh, a chemist named Fritz Haber, who was a German-Jewish scientist. He won the Nobel Prize for coming up with the first man-made fertilizer, which saved the world from starvation uh, in the early 1900s. It was a wonderful achievement. And then he used a very similar synthesis to invent the poison gases. And he uh, not only came up with the poison gas, but he was very supportive of it. The uh, generals, the German generals, did not want to use it. They were very against escalating warfare in that direction. Um, But he really fought for it. He went to the Kaiser. He went over the German generals' heads. He personally deployed the first chemical gases. So he was very hands-on with this terrible new direction in warfare. Mm. Uh, He was married to a woman who also was a chemist. She was one of the first women in Germany to get a PhD in chemistry, fought very hard to get that degree, but was basically relegated to the role of housewife, could not practice her field, and she was terribly opposed to the use of the poison gas. She wrote letters decrying it, and she ultimately killed herself uh, behind the family house. The thinking is that this was a means of protesting what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, Through my research and just through my sense of what people are like, I think it was more complicated than that. I think she was quite depressed about not being able to be a practicing chemist. Uh, There was a history of depression and suicide in the family. So I think those factors were there as well. You know, when I first heard this story, so what I've just told you is what I first heard. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, two chemists, she can't practice, she kills herself, the body is left with a child. And I just thought, I have never heard a story so dramatic in my life. Um, This needs to be written about. So that was the initial impetus for the story, was just the bare bones of this chilling, chilling but real story.
2: I wanted to ask you about your narrative and specifically Mm -hmm. about the challenges that you faced, given that before it's even started, but on the family tree, you Mm -hmm. doom all of your narrators to death, scheduled for the 31st of December. (laughs) And then kind of four pages later, we get a table that details the deaths of every other character we're going to meet, basically, sort of Cluedo style. Did you worry about the risks of, in some I mean, we're not going to do any spoilers in this, but in some ways giving so many spoilers at the beginning of your novel?
1: Um, you know, it's interesting, because the book starts out with them saying, we're going to kill ourselves on this date. And I thought, Because I did that, readers would doubt me, Mm -hmm. Um, and that turned out to be what happened. Some people read it and said, well, why would I read this because I know it's going to happen? But most people said, ah, you're saying that, so something else is going to happen. Um, I think it's really interesting, I talk about this a lot in my classes when I'm teaching creative writing, um, that readers enter into stories not in a passive way but in a very active way, and they question everything they're told. And I was counting on that kind of questioning. Um, All right, you're you're saying they're going to kill themselves. So do I believe you? Are they reliable? Do I trust that? And then I hoped by having that kind of provocative beginning that people might be interested in why, and that would keep them reading too. So that was, you know... My fingers were crossed, and I just kind of plunged in that way.
0: No, I think that I mean, it works for me. Ooh, absolutely. I, know, do you I think... have to
1: say that I often um, will tell students, when they try to withhold the, the big reveal, that sometimes if you put it in your first sentence, instead of trying to write to the mystery, you write to the truth. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, you, you have to really investigate your characters instead of just writing to a surprise, which, after a while, if the reader figures out, you've got nothing. But if you're writing about the truth of the people, that usually can sustain a narrative.
0: Now, in honour of that one day that was really warm when everyone went outside, here's a simple, refreshing and, trust me, delicious recipe from Anna Jones. Anna Jones. Cucumber Satay Crunch Salad Refreshing, crunchy and zippy all at the same time, this fresh salad is great to serve alongside Indian and Thai curries or as part of an easy summer dinner. It is, of course, also good to eat on its own for lunch or a light dinner with a flatbread or two. Don't be put off by the amount of fresh coriander here. It makes the salad. I use a big bunch for my greengrocers, but if you are buying little ones from the supermarket, you may want to buy two. This recipe allows the cucumber to shine. A very British vegetable and a member of the squash family, it's packed full of vitamin C. Recipe serves four. You'll need one cucumber, two handfuls of unsalted peanuts, a large bunch of fresh coriander, roughly chopped fruits and all, three good handfuls of spinach, washed and shredded, one lemon, one tablespoon honey. One teaspoon soy sauce, two tablespoons light coconut milk or olive oil. The drinking variety of coconut milk is good here. Half a small thumb-sized piece of fresh ginger, peeled and finely chopped. A handful of coconut flakes, toasted. Peel and halve your cucumber, then use a teaspoon to scrape out the seeds. Cut into half moons about half a centimetre thick and put into a big serving bowl the peanuts in a pestle and mortar until they are crumbled. Then add to the bowl with the chopped coriander leaves and stalks and the shredded spinach. Squeeze the juice of the lemon into a little jug or jar. Add the honey, soy sauce, coconut milk and ginger and mix well. Pour the dressing over the salad. Mix well and top with the toasted coconut flakes. Who in their right mind would embark on a 43-book-long murderous tour of counties in 1930s England, a literary mission if ever there was one, and one to top even Marple and Poirot? Well, Ian Sampson would, and here he explains why.
3: I think what what happened was that about five years ago, I made a programme for BBC Radio 4, Mm. which was about a man called Arthur Mee. And Arthur Mee was a very interesting, odd... Character who's almost entirely disappeared from English literary history, Mm. and the reason he's disappeared was because he was an autodidact. He left school at 14 and he went on. He became, I think, at the time, the youngest ever editor of a Fleet Street newspaper. Wow, I think he was maybe 20 in his early 20s. He was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. Mm. And he then went on to produce a thing called The Children's Newspaper and The Children's Encyclopedia, and many, 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 many other books that were set out to educate the young mm. uh, the ill-educated people who didn't perhaps have access to um, school or university educations and so he was someone who was interested in bringing education to the masses was just a, a brilliant, brilliant mm. man and I thought to myself i made this programme about him and then I thought over the course of a couple of years following I thought, you know, maybe it would be interesting if I could get a character who's a bit like that mm. a little bit like that and do something with them somebody who wanted to educate others in a populist kind of manner mm. and i was particularly interested as well that, so i had the idea of the character so there's that so there's this character who i've called then swanton morley mm. who's the people's professor mm. and he's kind of based i suppose on arthur me but lots of other people as well and so i had him mm-hmm. and then i had to work out what to do with him and i thought well it'd be good if i had him moving around in a landscape and I thought, well, I'll stick him in a nice car. So I put him in a Lagonda, which um,
0: turned out to be very difficult to get hold of an original picture. Exactly. So uh, there's a there's
3: a, pro- there's, a pro- there's a problem with uh, the particular Lagonda that I chose. You made up the colour. I made up the colour. So so all of that got a bit tricky. But anyway, so I made all of these things up, and then I thought, well, I'll give him a daughter. I gave him a daughter, mm-hmm. and then I thought, I'll give him uh, an assistant. So I gave him this assistant who could help him in his in, in his autodidactic endeavours, mm-hmm. and then I thought. How on earth could I make this coherent in some way across books? Mm. Because I suppose I've always been interested in, in, in those mad endeavours that might take a writer a lifetime to <laughs> embark upon. You know, rather than just one, those really long immersive books, um, yeah. you know, The Man Without Qualities or, um, you know A Proust, whatever Canterbury it might Tales. be. Canterbury no, Tales. Much bigger than The Canterbury Tales <laughs> is what I'm planning, but you know, that kind of, yeah. that, that kind of endeavour, <laughs> like massive, elk. massive kind of um, imaginative immersive imaginative experience, mm. the sort of thing mm. that now would be I suppose more familiar with if we're watching box sets on TV mm. that kind of long form immersive fiction has always fascinated me. So mm. How could I do this? And I thought, well, what about if I got my character, Mm. Swanton Morley, the people's professor, to be writing a guidebook about every county in England. And in each book, I'd take him to a county uh, to write his guidebook. But when he arrived in the county, there'd been a murder. And he then had to use his incredible autodidactic skills in order to solve the mystery. So that's basically Mm. each book effectively has him arriving in a county there's been a murder he has to solve the murder but it all happens in a particular time frame Mm. so it's all kind of in the late 30s leading up to the outbreak of the second world war Mm. and if i live long enough i'll do all of the books in the series Mm. of which there are quite a few and that will take us right up to the beginning of the second world war just beyond in fact so that's the, that's the plan. There's a lot. There's a lot of books in the series because before the 1974 Counties Act, as you doubtless are aware, <laughs> before the 1974 Counties Act, there were a lot of historic counties. Yeah. And if you take all of the historic counties and you break Yorkshire up into the, into the ridings and you add the bailiwicks of Jersey and Guernsey and then you take London as a separate entity, there would be pretty much 43... Ah. Books in all that you had to cover, so I'm only on book two at the moment. I've just no, I've finished book three. It's book two.
0: Book two's just come out. Has
3: just come out. Mm-hmm. Book three is done, and book four I've nearly finished. Fantastic. And book five I've started on. Where's so
0: where, No, you're probably not allowed to tell me where book five is going to be.
3: I could. Do you want to know? Yeah. Uh, so so book four <laughs> is Essex. Yeah. So so it goes Norfolk, Devon, Westmoreland,
0: so how you Essex. Say
3: it? I would say Westmoreland. Westmoreland.
0: Oh, Westmoreland, I I think that's probably just like a London way it. I would I say Westmoreland Westmoreland. Westmoreland, yeah. Westmoreland
3: I think is because you think of Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestling, don't you? Yeah. And so <laughs> Westmorland. maybe <what> <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just me who thinks that. So um so that, that so it's Norfolk, Devon, Westmoreland, Essex. And then I think I'm going to for some reason I'm going to Sussex. Nice. After that, yeah, and then I'm going to go north again. I'm going north after Sussex. Yeah. So I think I'm going to Northumberland.
0: Mm. So. And have you been to every single one of said counties yourself?
3: Not yet. But, but, but obviously <laughs> my in-depth research requires me to, to travel to each county. And the, the most interesting thing, actually, for me is... They're, they're really research based. There's historical mm. fiction, I suppose, of mm. a kind. And that requires a kind of research that I'm interested in doing, mm. which means going to a place and kind of trying to burrow down into the place in some way. Mm. And also making use of all the resources that really fascinate me in places, which would be like local libraries. Mm. You know, the most helpful people that I've met doing the research for the books are local librarians. Mm. Just you walk in off the street. You so I'm interested in this town. And they will show you some things that you could never have... I could never have found it in the British Library or the Bodleian in a million years. I could have eventually turned it up myself. Yeah. But someone who knows the local area is able to take you straight to something that you might be interested in. So it's really... I've really enjoyed that. You're yeah. meeting people. Yeah. You're meeting people, not just places. Yeah. So it's those two things together, I think.
0: That's brilliant. And you've got... To round us off, here's an exclusive extract from Death in Devon, read by Mike Grady. Chapter
2: 5 a sodality of Pedagogues At the sound of our approach, the vast door of the manor house was swung open by a worried-looking young woman, apparently a nurse, who was done out in a most striking outfit, consisting of a blood-red dress with a white apron over it and a little Sister Dora cap perched jauntily on her head, which gave her the appearance of someone having just rushed panicking from performing some particularly grisly surgery. From behind this rather ghoulish creature first came there a voice, and then a man, shuffling into view. "'Do I hear John Bull's roar?' cried the voice. "'The people's professor?' "'You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive,' Molly said, to the figure who now stood in the doorway. Their exchange of words caused much mutual amusement. It was some kind of private greeting, I understood.' There was then a prolonged and vigorous shaking of hands. The two men seemed to operate on the same frequency, and gave off exactly the same vibration of relentlessly hearty vigour, and Morley then introduced us. "'This is Dr. Standish,' he said, "'headmaster of all souls.' "'Well, well, well,' said Dr. Standish, "'what do we have here?' What we had here was a man who might almost have been Morley's double, though perhaps a little more careworn, his face perhaps rather coarser-featured, his cheeks perhaps a little redder and rounder, his moustache rather more drooping, and his eyes small and hard and bitter, like a blackbird's. "'This is my assistant,' said Morley, "'Mr. Stephen Sefton.' your are Boswell, eh, Swanton?' said Dr. Standish, in a rather sniggering fashion, I thought. "'I don't know about that,' I said. We shook hands. He gave off a slight whiff of lavender, as though having only recently bathed. "'I have always been of the opinion,' said Morley, "'that the great calm was in fact a fictional character "'invented by the scheming Scotsman as a way of making a reputation for himself.' "'Ha-ha! <laughs> Very good,' said Dr. Standish, "'smiling and showing a set of gleaming teeth, "'though I'm sure such treasonous thoughts "'are far from the mind of your young assistant.' Indeed, I agreed. Nothing could have been further from my mind. And this is my daughter, said Morley. Charmed, said Miriam, offering her hand, and simpering rather. Well, well, said Dr. Standish, you have grown up since last we met. Indeed, we are now full grown, said Miriam, hoisting herself up to her not inconsiderable height, and gazing at him mesmerisingly in her fashion over her cheekbones you haven't aged though headmaster said morley well teaching keeps one young i suppose poe eternus said morley the eternal boy indeed said standish no need to stand on ceremony though old friend come in come in come in
0: for the full audio of these interviews and much more please go to www.fourthestate.co.uk the County Guides, Death in Devon by Ian Sampson, is available now in Hardback, eBook and Downloadable Audio. A reunion of ghosts by Judith Claire Mitchell is also available now in Hardback, EBook and Trade Paperback. A Modern Way to Eat is available now in Hardback and Ebook, and look out for Anna's follow-up, A Modern Way to Cook, coming this June. All are published by Fourth Estate. Thank you for listening.